The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. John O'Connor will be joining us. John is the attorney for Deep Throat. Now, when I typed that into the Twitch description, it blocked me. Well, it wouldn't let me, wouldn't let me go live with it. Because a lot of people, and apparently the moderators at Twitch, uh, believe Deep Throat to be something other than an informant, an inside government informant to the press that revealed the ongoings of Watergate, the Watergate scam scandal. Um, but that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Deep Throat is the source that Bob Woodward referred to as pointing him in the right direction during this Watergate uh, scandal uh, revelation with the Washington Post. So we're going to talk about that, but this this conversation is going to go far deeper than that because Watergate and the way it was covered and the way it was followed up changed the relationship between the American public, the government, and the media. And we're seeing the effects of that today. And that's what we're going to talk about as well. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. We've got a great conversation. This is one I've been actually very excited about and waiting for for quite some time. Our guest for the rest of the evening, John O'Connor, is the attorney for the notorious informant Deep Throat. Now, this is the gentleman that pointed the reporters for The Washington Post in the right direction, which resulted in the resignation of Richard Nixon through the uh, Watergate scandal. He's written a book called Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, covered up Watergate, and began today's partisan journalism. John, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's really an honor to have you here with us tonight. Hey, well, I'm excited to be on your show. You've got a great show, and uh, no, I'm, I'm excited. Now, if you're like me, when I say you, I'm talking about talking to my audience. If you're like me, you're uh, you know of the age where Watergate was one of these pivotal moments in your upbringing, your growing up. Uh, I remember being a... I don't even know. I must have been nine years old or so. Um, Year old kid. My family was on vacation. We were staying in a cabin at a state lake, and my parents were listening to the radio as Richard Nixon resigned and on live radio. And I remember that moment like people who were alive during the JFK assassination remember that moment. And everyone who was alive during 9-11 remember that moment. Uh, John, this is one of those pivotal moments in American history that you just can't escape. Well, right, it is. And uh, it was exciting for me. I had just become a lawyer. My first day at work was the Monday after the arrests. Um, and then uh, later on, I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I happened to be in Washington, D.C. at a little training session, the first training session they ever had for baby prosecutors. And the teacher said, oh, by the way, we're going to break at an odd time today because you guys might want to walk down the street and see the president resign. He's going to be on his helicopter and he'll take off. So I thought, this is so odd. Wow. I'm toddling down the street with a, a black woman from Mississippi and a crazy wise guy from New York and a short guy from this place and a tall guy from that place <laughs> and a woman from here. And I thought, this odd collection of young prosecutors, we are operating a system that's fair and clean, and that president has to leave just because of regular people like us in the government who are doing the right thing. I was extremely proud, even though I was appointed by Nixon <laughs> and and uh, so forth, to be a, be a prosecutor. And I thought, this is the way our system of laws should work. 
And I became fascinated by it. I was a young lawyer in San Francisco, uh, always uh, made my basketball games. My social calendar would kind of hit and miss, as every bachelor who is listening to this knows. And so I would spend time in bars and coffee shops just thinking about this book, All the President's Men, and this fellow Deep Throat. And I wanted to know whether Deep Throat was just sort of an oddball, a black swan, a unicorn, whatever you want to call him, that popped out of the White House and just decided to talk to the reporters, or whether it was a calculated member of the Justice Department that was trying to keep our system pure and clean. In other words, we had a curative a system that was curative of itself. And so I was very interested in who it was. And certainly by 1976, after thinking about this and having a lot of cappuccinos and beer over it, uh, I decided it was Mark Felt, and I could prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury. I was just convinced of it. And, of course, J.V., I was also convinced that nobody cared what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> so I went went about my career, uh, met a girl, got married. She was going to have kids right away. Okay, got to quit, go private practice, do this, rush, rush, rush. 25 years later, I'm sitting at my kitchen table with a bunch of uh, my daughter's friends from Stanford, and uh, one of the young men across the table from me uh, had, had knew my dad had been an FBI agent and said, well, you know, my grandfather was in the FBI. Uh, his name was Mark Felt, and maybe you've heard of him. Well, I, wow. <laughs> I fell off my chair, JVN. I said, well, you know, Nick, your, your grandfather's deep throat. Can I come up and talk to him? I think I know what motivates him. I think I can push his buttons. And I think his story should be told while he's alive and before Woodward uh, talks about him while he's dead. So anyway, long story short, that eventually happened. It eventually happened. Uh, and the family, of course, had no idea they were living with deep throat. And, uh, and so uh, we did that. But in the course, later on, as I began, actually a few weeks later, I started talking to Woodward and trying to convince him to help us. And he refused to admit that Mark was deep throat and so forth and so on. And as a matter of fact, tried to uh, convince the family that he wasn't deep throat and that it'd be embarrassing for him to come out and he shouldn't come out. And it'd be terrible for the old man to be humiliated on a national stage. And, you know, his lawyer's just a money grubber and don't listen to him. Well, I go through this in my book, Postgate, and it's very fascinating for the readers here who are looking for some juicy behind this, behind history, the human face behind history. This is it. But anyway, JV, I went and did a book and go through this in my in my own book about writing the first book with Mark about this. And I began to smell a rat. I was always a great fan of Watergate journalism. I thought it was the best journalism ever. And I thought today's journalism simply failed in comparison to this great gold standard where you had a perfect source, Mark Phelps, Deep Throat, and you had two energetic young reporters, and you had a, a White House doing skullduggery. What a great moment in our history. Everybody remembers it. It was very exciting for me. Um, and, and, and as you say, people who in that era, this was the defining moment. Now, Think about it, before I get into my punchline here, think about what Watergate journalism did. All of a sudden, you had scores and scores of young people saying they're going to go to journalism school mm -hmm. to be investigative journalism, not to just go out there and tell the world who, what, where, when. That's no good. The, the survey that was passed around said 
when people responded to it, said, I'm going to journalism school to change the world. That's what they were doing. And, of course, most of the journalists, going, young people going into journalism school, not only wanted to be another Woodward or Bernstein, they wanted to change the world. And generally, it would have been in a more liberal direction. That it, The assumption was that everybody that does bad things is a skulking conservative, you know, that uh, has sort of a snidely whiplash and twirls the mustache. And no, no, of course, no, no Democrat, no liberal could ever do a bad thing. I mean, God knows. So... I, 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 but but it did change journalism uh, profoundly, and what happened was that all of a sudden newspapers realized they were not going to do well, and, and television was not going to do well if it just said who, what, when, where, told both sides, acted dignified. You've got to have a scalp on the wall. Now, and that's how you make your money. You don't make your money by saying in your mansion and your Pulitzer Prize – by saying, you know, there's an argument that this guy did something wrong, and but here's the other side of it. Maybe right. we're rushing to judgment. Let's think about it. You don't get Pulitzer Prizes for that. Right. So the tendency is then, if you can do a gate, and every scandal is a gate, if you can get a gate going, you know, uh, Monica Gate, this gate, Iran-Contra Gate, uh, you know, whatever it is, now you've got something going, and you can be the big star and the big hero. But the tendency is, let's think about it this way, J.V. That's like a lawyer being a contingent. You, you get rewarded for winning. If I'm a lawyer on a contingent fee case and my client says, okay, John, I'll give you 40% of the proceeds if you win a jury verdict, I say, okay. Now, if I can go into court without a judge, without opposing counsel, and just 12 nice people, jurors, uh, am I going to tell both sides – and I'm going to say, well, you know, there's another side to my case. No, I'm not going to do that. Right. That's not that's not human nature, is it? So you're going to go into that court and you're going to emphasize the good points, and maybe you won't even mention these nasty little bad points that sort of are around there. They, and the jury's none the wiser. And you tell them how to decide it and what the rules are and what, how they should decide. You don't have a judge there to give instructions. You give them the instructions. Well, that's our media today at least the mainstream media. Now, I, I'm a big, big, big fan of the talk radio around the country because it encourages a variety of opinion, and it basically is very democratic. If you don't have a good show, you're not going to make it. If you have a good show, you get listeners. The mainstream media has a monopoly. It's it's all fixed and, and so forth. Uh, but here's let me get back to, to what I found, and this is sort of odd because here I am for many years. I think I'm an astute guy. I really study this stuff. Every time something happens, I study it. It's my sort of my hobby. And it wasn't until around 2007, 8, I started smelling a rat on uh, the Washington Post. And then a few things happen. I go to them in my book. They're very juicy and very intriguing. I'm not going to step on the fun of my book. Um, but I started, I said, you know something? My new hobby is going to be like it was back in 1974. It's going to try to find out what the Post was up to here. So I had my summer clerks, my interns, whatever, spending all their time. I went out and found 3,000 Washington Post articles that did research for all the various transcripts and hearings and FBI statements and everything I could find to find out if the Washington Post really told the truth in Watergate. And the answer is... 
Yes, they told part of the truth. They told some of the truth about Richard Nixon. There's no doubt about it. They told part of the truth. Did they tell all the truth? No. And they decidedly left out a, the real, true underlying context of Watergate. I mean, Richard Nixon lied. He had a couple, or rather, he obstructed justice in a couple places. But the question is, what's the context of that? In almost every piece of litigation, every sketch, every uh, scandal, somebody is going to say something or do something that's not quite right. Uh, but oftentimes, if you're the victim of that, you could say, well, he's not really, JV's not really obstructing justice. He's just sort of flailing because he's been uh, wrongly targeted. Well, the Post left out, and I go through this in my book, a big, big part of Watergate. It had nothing to do with the campaign, as the Post told us all. It was really about a combination of the CIA and a rogue lieutenant at the White House, both of them interested for their various reasons, in wiretapping the nice young girls down the street talking to the old men that are in town visiting the DNC. And that's what they were doing. That's what the whole thing was about. But the Post hid that from us. Um, the Post was tied to the hip at the DNC. So they weren't trying to exonerate the CIA, but they had to uh, hide things for the CIA, cover up for the CIA, because thereby they would cover up for the DNC, to whom they were tied together at the hip. So what we have is rather than having a three-ring circus at Watergate that would have been tremendously instructive for our citizens, maybe Nixon would have still gone, maybe he wouldn't, but we would have had one heck of a good civics lesson and a good, solid civic discussion. And I think out of it, no one would, you can't say, well, this one side's always wrong and this one side's always right. It was, there was a lot of actors with mixed motives and you could, and it would have really been a very nuanced novel that would have helped us all. It was exciting as it was. It's the first time anybody had ever gotten into a president like this. So there was a lot of sheer animal excitement. And I was part of the part of the howling pack. I mean, I'll be very frank. I just hung in every word. But it just wasn't true. I mean, I hate to say that. I hate to say I'm sort of a sucker, but uh, there's nothing wrong with that because I, I believe the Post. Um, and so what it is, it's a lesson. If they can fool us in Watergate, what can they do in other cases? Now, in this case, Nixon was guilty, so that was the good thing about it. I mean, for, from their perspective, he was guilty at least of a cover-up, not of the underlying crime. So, you know, the Post could say, well, we got a scalp and we were right all along and all that stuff. And I don't I, – I give them that. I give them that. But they essentially deceived the American public in a matter that was as important a scandal as we have had in our history the only time in our country's history that a president has been chased from office, really, really removed by impeachment before the posse got him. Right. Um, and so let's think about that. If that's so, and journalism understands that it has that power of a fourth estate that is unaccountable to no one, the first the three branches of government, all it's like uh, rock, paper, scissors. Each one of them has its own problems and has limits to what it can do, checks and balances. There's no checks and balances on the mainstream national media uh, 
fourth estate. It's really a fourth unaccountable branch of government. So we have an odd situation in which our whole future, our you know, our, our public conversation is based upon what some people are going to do that really have a partisan agenda. Um, in some cases, they're very, very well-meaning. In some cases, they just have no critical intelligence to look at facts. In some cases, they're just flat-out dishonest. Uh, some cases, thinking they're partisan. Uh, all those things, it's sort of a triangle. You put all those things together. Some of these people are great people. They're just, you know, are fools. <laughs> <laughs> some people are afraid to say anything because they got to keep their job. I mean, think about it. Uh, I'll give you an example, J.B. We have the Duke lacrosse scandal. Uh, I tried to write about the Duke lacrosse scandal, uh, and uh, full full disclosure, my daughter knew all the lacrosse players and was on her social media the next morning. I kind of knew a little bit about it, but I started sniffing around and looking at it, and it was very clear what had happened in that case, and the guys were not guilty. I tried to write about it, uh, but I'm not an established writer. Nobody would take my, even though I'd written about Deep Throat, nobody would take my op-eds, my articles about it. As it turns out, the New York Times uh, reporter that was sent down to Durham to cover this, he came up with the same things I was coming up with. He thought this whole thing smelled, that the woman was just claiming rape because she had nodded off in her car and was going to get sent to the drug tank, and so decided maybe she'd been raped before she got sent to the drug tank. and uh, uh, But when the New York Times reporter started uh, thinking that, uh, guess what? He got yanked off the case mm-hmm. and sent a new reporter down. Now, how does this how does this do for your career when somebody you're in the New York Times newsroom and you see Joe Blow, a nice guy who means well, has every good intention of telling the truth, and he gets yanked because he's not covering the story the right way? Well, what kind of what kind of reporting is that? But that's what we have. Whereas we wouldn't have had that in 1972. We just wouldn't have had that. And I think we're seeing that on steroids uh, now, right now. Uh, that whole idea that you can't you can't necessarily report the truth. You've got to report what the uh, agenda is of whatever organization you happen to be working for. Oh, that's absolutely it. You, you have to do that. And I was in France. I never do this. I've never done it before. I'm not a biker. Uh, I don't think there's a bike that can hold me without the tires bursting, but I found <laughs> one. And, uh, and, you know, it's one of these electric bikes. So I go up a hill. Yep. My wife wanted to do it. So I go over to France and I finish my bike and I'm going to the hotel. And uh, all of a sudden, this thing about Ukraine happens. And the only station, the reason I mentioned being in France is because the only television station I could get was CNN. Mm. And CNN was telling me about the Ukraine thing. And what they would do is they'd talk about this terrible call. President Trump was on this terrible call. He actually asked the other guy to investigate Hunter Biden. And then you look at the screen, and there's a little box that comes up in the corner of the screen, and it says, fact check. Hunter Biden did absolutely nothing wrong in Ukraine, period, end of story. And then you listen to some more. I turn it on. A couple hours later, fact check box comes on. Hunter Biden did absolutely nothing wrong. And then all the now wait 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 a second is that investigative reporting 
anybody bother to look and find out that maybe Hunter Biden's client had actually taken $5.6 billion of United States taxpayers' money? I mean, it's documented. Right. And he was right in the center of all these machinations. And by the way, to my uh, Republican uh, friends in Congress and wherever on, on TV, they never mentioned it. I don't, I don't think anybody understood anything other than that Biden had fired a prosecutor. Uh, they didn't get to it either. So I don't want to say that uh, it was just the liberal press that manufactured this. I mean, the, the conservative press was trying to fight it, did it very poorly. But but here's this story that is very important, and yet it's reported like this. And 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 so and of course half the country senses that this is total BS and they understand it, but the other half takes it real seriously. And what do we have? Now let me just give you an example. And maybe I'm you know straying off the topic here a bit, but it, it, what I'm going to say here, JV, is what is the consequence? of bad reporting? Is it just, well, okay, the Democrats are going to get a few more points in the next election or, you know, what have you, or, you know, some measure is going to pass Congress that shouldn't pass it. No. Think about this. As a result of the bad reporting on Ukraine, we know that Trump was stymied in any efforts to get this new guy, Zelensky, who was just elected to investigate corruption. We know that. Okay. Zelensky, all the pressure was off from him to investigate corruption. People don't understand that the biggest thug in Ukraine, the biggest, and remember, our policy was to keep out Russian influence and to keep the oligarchs out. And that's all we heard on TV. These pompous bureaucrats, oh, we got to keep Russian influence out. We got to fight the oligarchs. Oh, my God, this phone call is terrible. Well, as a result of the impeachment, Zelensky's patron, who had left the country after he stole $5.6 billion of our money, $5.6 billion. I'm not making it up. You can look it up. All your, if your listeners look up Privat Bank, P-R-I-V-A-T, capital B-A-N-K, all one word, Privat Bank, you will see that I'm not just – it's just there in black and white. And, 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 and it was the biggest bank in Ukraine. He owned it. He's a terrible mobster, took over things by – uh, men actually showing up with baseball bats, tire irons, chainsaws, rubber bullets. In one case, was accused of murder to take over a company. One of the worst oligarchs ever. And so, so because the pressure was off Zelensky to investigate, and the pressure was off any of this corruption stuff. This guy Kolomoisky, who's the guy I'm talking about, had been out of the country for three years after they discovered the $5.6 billion hole. Now, with Trump getting battered every day by the police, by the press, uh, Kolomoisky can come back into Ukraine. And once the dust settles and everybody's gone and now we're on to something else and our attention spans of, of a hummingbird are diverted elsewhere, Kolomoisky has now announced – that uh, Ukraine is now going to be a pro-Russian country, okay? He is now trying to get his bank back, which now has been reflated with $5.6 billion in in financing from the IMF, which we fund. Uh, And so he's going to get his bank back and his $5.6 billion back, all because we had this BS reporting, uncritical, 
didn't get into the real corruption, and we've got a guy running for president that enabled that corruption. He's got no dirt on him right now, no looking into this, and yet Hunter Biden and his partners were thick as thieves on this, as was John Kerry, by the way, whose son is part of the yep. little Hunter Biden group. So all this just passes right now. So what we have is, let's back up. We have in Hillary Clinton's money. She's Secretary of State. She gets 20% of the United States uranium over to uh, Russia, gets $133 million in the Clinton Foundation. Ho-hum, nothing to see there. Uh, now we have Ukraine going to Russia, the Russian influence and and oligarchic influence and uh the money, all our money is gone and wasted, and the people are still just poor as dirt over there, and the oligarchs are doing well. And this is what this is what we are reaping. We have reaped what we sow. And so I'm not suggesting that a good press should just go one way or the other. Oh, boy, it's, it should all be all conservative. It should be all this or that. No, let's just keep everybody honest. That's, right. that's all we should all care about. Uh, and so I had to write this book. I had to write this book. And JV, if you know, if you get it, and it, and it's very juicy for for much of the book. And the last part is juicy, but it has a lot of details about Watergate. You'll learn a lot about Watergate and what really happened. So you got to kind of pay attention. That you got each page is a little bit slower at the end, but it also proves how dishonest the Post was as to those facts that I bring out about Watergate that no one knows. So I'm going through all the facts that no one knows about Watergate and how the Post knew them, knew about them, and they and how they reported them dishonestly. Now, my point is that I make in the book is if they can do that in Watergate, what are they doing today? What is going on today? Uh, and that's what we're finding. That's what we're finding here. Uh, so uh, this is sort of a – I'm on sort of a soliloquy here, uh, and I, I kind of get to stop here and have you pepper me with some questions. <laughs> but but, uh, but that, that's sort of my story, and I'm sticking to it for the most part, unless you can tell me why I shouldn't. But, but that's sort of my uh, – th- that's what motivates me and what, what I can't take – is and many of us are in families like this. I can't take. I've got wonderfully brilliant brothers and sisters that come from a big Irish family, some brilliant cousins, and we love to. We've always loved to talk and argue. But if they all listen to MSNBC and CNN, yeah. and that's all they listen to, uh, if you say anything that you know, uh, see one of the things that I think the media does is, is not only gets facts out there that are wrong. But it gets people worked up that anyone who believes something different from them is not just wrong. It's not just wrong. They're not an error. Here's one, two, three, four, five, why you're an error. But it's their, that they're hateful, bad, right. evil people. And therefore, you are doing a disservice if you don't just yell and kick them in the groin as soon as they say something like that and you cancel them. And so what we have now is a culture completely different than that envisioned by the founding fathers in the Federalist Papers, where toxic factionalism was to be remedied by this press that was going to say all sides, state all facts so that nobody could get away with anything. 
We don't have that now. Now we have a case in which there are a bunch of people running around angry that if you mention anything one way, you just get yelled at. Uh, once that happens, you can now have a public discourse here in which nobody can say, wait a second, maybe we shouldn't pull down all the statues. Let's wait. Let's talk about it. Maybe we should. There's some of these guys are bad. Maybe we should pull down some statues. Maybe we shouldn't. But why don't we talk about education in the in, in the bad parts of these cities? Why don't we do something about education? Let's talk. Right. But we have a civic conversation that is so bad and so directed by people that if you say anything like that, you're going to get eggs thrown at. If you're lucky, it's eggs. You know, you might get you know, the hell beat out of you. So it's 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 a bad situation. I'm an old guy, GB, you know, not doesn't make much difference for me, you know, but I just feel bad for the young families out there that have to live and look forward to trying to live their lives in this society. Um, so all what I'll do mercifully for you is I'll shut up a bit and have you ask me some questions. <laughs> well, I mean, John, you've said so much um, in, in, that answer and those answers. And there are so many ways we could take this conversation before we leave the points that you just made and get, maybe get back to uh, Watergate specifically and, and deep throat a little more detail. I want to talk about this media thing a little bit more because I, I with you think it's very, very important that we understand what's going on here. And I know that you've got some opinions um, on this uh, video that's gone viral in St. Louis of the um, husband and wife that were defending or trying to defend their home by not doing nothing more than standing in front of it with firearms saying, keep moving, stay off our property, this is private property. Those two people, I think their name was McCluskey, those two mm -hmm. people have been vilified. And, and when you turn on CNN or MSNBC, or you read the New York Times, it's white people hold guns of pe for, against peaceful, peaceful protesters, or something along those lines, which is not the truth. What do you think of that situation? And is there any remedy? Can we come back from something like this? Well, we can, but we have a, have a media that characterizes that situation correctly. You know, just turn turn the tables around. Let's say there are a whole bunch of, you know, white people that were just up in arms and doing all kinds of stuff and carrying weapons, and some black folks came out of their house and said, it, it, keep moving, they had their weapons. I wouldn't be reported the same way. Right. Uh, and and so there's, you know, there, there's sort of like not, uh, there's always a slant to these things, and it's it's really unfair. And there are two sides to this. One side is, hey, you all talk about defunding the police. Yep. Maybe the McCluskeys shouldn't have to do this. That's exactly what is right. It about our society that they have to do this. They didn't want to do it. They called they the just suit, have a have a guy in a blue yeah. uniform. They called nine one one first, and they got and they and nobody came to help them. I mean, these people were fearing for their lives. Right, right, and that's exactly why every time something like this happens, gun sales boom, and there's the feeling that, you know, maybe we're not really being protected and our liberties are not protected, our property. What, are we, what is the government supposed to do, protect our liberty and our property and our, uh, you know, which is pursuit of happiness. Right. The framer said that. But, but it's not doing that. It's not keeping us safe. Nope. It's not keeping us free. 
And so we have to do it ourselves. And so what we have is it's, it's like the, the law of all against all. And I, I just feel I feel terrible for those people. And, you know, but the way it's portrayed, the way it's portrayed, an awful lot of and I'm living with a wonderful woman who is like a walking, talking opinion poll. Whatever she feels at any one moment in time, 60 percent of the country will feel that way or 52. She's pretty good about this. She just she's not trying to do it. She just reacts to what she sees on TV because she's not like her lawyer husband. And I dissect things and I say, well, wait a second. You got to look at this. You got to look at that. And, of course, she thought, well, this was terrible that these people had had a machine gun. How terrible. Because that's all you see. You see the machine gun. And nobody thinks about, wait a second, why does the guy have the machine gun? Is he doing it just for fun? <laughs> or is he scared out of his mind? Right. If he's scared out of his mind and he has a reasonable apprehension of it, that's what the law allows you to do. We that's learned right. that in first-year law school. That's okay. Question on the exam. Yes, that's okay. You have reasonable apprehension of bodily injury. You can do that. And so – it's it's unfortunate that I, I guess one of the things you point out, JV, is that the civic conversation should be elevated by the media, by CNN and MSNBC, but it's not elevated at all. No, it's not elevated at all. It's it's really an emotional hodgepodge uh, where we're descending into an intellectual gutter. Um, you know, some of it is is that images on television could be very raw and visceral and just uh, uh, one picture can just sway people as happened during the Vietnam War. Uh, you know, and there have been some good books written about the difference between a, a, a culture of a written print culture and one with these uh, images. But all the more so, if these images are so powerful, all the more reason that the people showing them have got to be balanced, have yeah. got to be have critical intelligence. They should be leading us. They should be helping us. They should be elevating our minds and our souls, really. I hate to be real lofty about this, but that's what they should be doing. And they're not. They're making us into just irrational savages and who just react wildly to whatever image we see. And it is not good what we're getting is, I mean, you know, it's again, I hate to get back to the Federalist Papers, but and a lot of people talking about democracy in those days, because that's when democracies first became an idea. People said, well, what about mobs? Aren't you going to get mobs? Isn't the tendency of the people just to come up with some crazy stuff and, you know, tar and feather people and shoot people and lynch people and all that? And, you know, the Founding Fathers talked a lot about that. And unfortunately, like I say, the remedy was supposed to be the First Amendment. Didn't work out so well, did it? Mm. Uh, you know, the First Amendment now is, is a license for these people to make us in, into bigger mobs than we would have been. It'd be better, you know, not to have this stuff shown at all. It's too bad, isn't it? Yeah. It's, uh, we're, we're living in a very challenging time, and I can only hope that uh, cooler heads and uh, more uh, in, intelligence will prevail, or pre- will ultimately prevail. 
Let's um, because my blood gets boiling when we start talking about this stuff, and I'm I feel the same way as you, John. Um, let's bring this back to a discussion about your relationship with Deep Throat, uh, Mark Fell. I want to know a little bit more about that. You said that you had um, you know, been pondering this idea for a long time. You'd been kind of uh, working out the formula, if you will, to see who Deep Throat could have been. You came up with uh, Mark Felt. D- did you know Mark Felt at that point, or did you meet him later? No, I didn't meet him until 2002, like you say, 25 years later, 26 years later, when I, uh, this fellow was in my uh, across the table from him. But, um, uh, but what I could do is, just from Woodward's book, Woodward and Bernstein's book alone about Deep Throat, I could take the clues, the description, and I could take those clues and find who it was. I didn't need anything really much more than that book, right. which led me to believe, and I can tell you a few things, and, and I can get back to it. it. might be fun for your viewers. But it led me to the question of, well, wait a second. This guy supposedly, Woodward has his world-renowned reputation because he protected his source. Mm-hmm. Is he really protecting his source? If this young guy in San Francisco that drinks a lot of cappuccino and beer, if he can figure out who he is, <laughs> is he really protecting him? And when billions of people know there's deep throat, what if a JV decides to do a dime on the mafia and tells the reporter, you know, you got to keep me safe here. Don't reveal my, uh, you know, whatever, uh, my identity. Please don't. Okay, sure, you got it, JV. I won't do it. So the next day, uh, you know, in the paper is, well, uh, the mafia was identified by, uh, we're not going to tell you it is because we're really noble, but, you know, it's it's a guy that's got a, a you know, pretty good a radio show, you know, it's and uh, he's he's like this, he's like that, and he right. has this type of guest. You'd say, wait a second, they're not protecting me. They're identifying me. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. And as I looked at these clues and I went through and I just was sort of, like I say, used critical intelligence just to look at what this must mean. Everywhere I came, I mean, I got – it was pretty quick for me to come up to say it had to be at the very highest levels of the Justice Department in two areas and probably about 10 people. And then it took me another year to say, well, it had to be Mark Felt and that's it. Um and, and I can give you some examples of it, but, um, but, but that's one of the things that I go through in my book as to I figured, well, Woodward had to have paid Mark Felt or else his, his, uh, his source wouldn't have agreed to this. Why would he ever agree to being outed like this? And Woodward was supposed to be so faithful to him, wasn't he? Boy, Woodward really, really loved Deep Throat, and he wouldn't have done this without Deep Throat's permission. So – I because my my client has dementia when I meet him. I mean, he's very good in the moment. We have great conversations, but he'll forget him. How old was uh, he when you, How old was he when you met him at that time? I think he was eighty nine, going on. Oh 90. wow! Okay. Mm-hmm. And he had and he just had a stroke and he had some dementia anyway, so he knew he was deep throat, but he couldn't prove it, and he couldn't say if he'd been in a garage. There's no way he could prove it. And I think Woodward was depending upon that. Uh, Woodward knew I was around, sniffing around and telling him who he's deep through. But Woodward had visited him, and he knew that Mark was unable to prove his identity. And what he didn't count on was the fact that I could prove it without Mark. And I actually have a judge's decision. I got sued and for various things, and and 
the judge found, uh, and she's a, a retired uh, retired federal court judge, found that, you know, I proved Mark's identity from my own work, so to speak, from my own, you know, from my own intellectual property and not from anything Mark told me, that I could prove it seven times over, and it had some significance in the case. But that's what I did, and I went around and I pitched pitched the case. Now, most people don't understand circumstantial evidence and all that, and they they seem to believe me, but, you know, um, they're newspaper people, and newspaper people aren't that swift, really, when it gets to this kind of stuff, and they don't know what's what. And that's one of the things that bothered me when I come to them with this case. And I signed a couple of contracts where people were very excited about outing Deep Throat. And uh, I would prove the case to them. I gave them a couple of them, each one of them six months, and I would spend a lot of time with them going over everything, right. telling them why I had to be right. And they would go, yeah, 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 yeah. But it would really bother them. I mean, they were hoping that somehow I'd come up with a video of him in the garage with Woodward. Well, you know, not going to happen. Not, you don't prove cases that way. Uh, you know, it may shock you to know that maybe O.J. Simpson might actually be guilty, even though we don't <laughs> actually have a film of him killing anybody. Uh, and so you, the circumstantial evidence may be pretty darn good. So let, let me give you an example of something that just shot out at me. Uh, but, but, you know, I could do 200 of these, but I'll just give you one. Sure. There, there was a time in both the book and the movie where Woodward and Bernstein got burned because they published a story that turned out not to be true. And the story was that a Republican treasurer named Hugh Sloan didn't make much difference to your viewers, but this Republican treasurer had said there was a slush fund. And uh, the story said that he named... H.R. Haldeman, who was the chief of staff of the White House, as being one of the signatories to the slush fund. And it was an important story because it meant that the guy sitting right next to the president was a signatory to the slush fund of cash, which was used to fund the burglary. So it looked like an advancement on the story. They wrote it. They wrote that Hugh Sloan testified to that. Sure enough, it wasn't true. Now, everybody, you know, so, so everybody you know, kind of railed on the post, oh, you got the story wrong. Well, in actuality, H.R. Haldeman was a signatory to the slush fund. He was. The problem was Hugh Sloan, the, the witness in the grand jury, did not testify to that. And that's what the story was about. The story was about what he testified to. Hmm. Now, I knew, so he, Woodward had come to, had gotten this tip from an FBI agent Turned out he had mixed up Halton with somebody else, and and he had brought the story to Deep Throat, and Deep Throat said, "I can't help you on this. I'm not going to confirm it for you." And they published the story anyway, and so that was a big deal. And the all the presidents been, oh, Deep Throat wouldn't confirm it, and then they got burned. And boy, they should have listened to Deep Throat. They should have taken heed in his warning. So I thought, now let me think about this. Why would they go to Deep Throat to confirm that story? What does that tell you? What it tells you is they must have thought that Deep Throat had access to the transcript, right? They weren't asking about whether H.R. Haldeman was, in fact, a signatory to this issue. There might be 10 or 15 people who know that, or 20 or 25. But 
and, and they could be in the White House. They could be in the committee to reelect the president. There could be a lot of people who know about Holtzman being a signatory to the slush fund, but only a few people would have seen the transcript of the grand jury proceedings. They're, they're confidential. It's against the law to divulge them. So I thought, well, okay, right there, there we are, right there. Has to be a few guys in the FBI and a few guys in the Justice Department that saw that transcript. That narrows the field down to probably six or seven guys. Right. So now that's just one thing, but I mean, I, I wouldn't take that to the bank, but that's one of <laughs> But you go through this and you keep thinking, and you know, like they say, I had a lot of time. It's just sort of fun for me to think about this, but every place you go, you see something like that, and you say, well, wait a second. Well, that, that means that the guy has to be an agent, or he wouldn't have said that. He has to be a guy with investigative experience. Or then you go someplace else, you say, well, wait a second. This guy had to have gotten this from Patrick Gray, the head of the FBI. Now, who would most likely talk to Patrick Gray about this? It'd probably be his number two guy, Mark Felt. And it goes on and on and on and on. So, I, you know, I thought, you know, and then I just was, did not jump to conclusions. I mean, I spent a lot of time making sure I was absolutely right. I just was sort of doing this for sport. Um, but because I was just fascinated. Like, you know, it was very exciting back in those days. And I was becoming a junior. I was a junior prosecutor trying to make my way up in the world. And I just like this stuff. This is what I did every day. So um, it became very clear to me who it was. And, and I began thinking over the years – well, boy, why did he, why did Deep Throat allow himself to be subject to these clues? Didn't, didn't, uh, 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 Woodward must have, uh, uh, Mark must have given him a permission. Well, lo and behold, guess what? When I didn't have any clue as to whether he'd given him permission because my client couldn't remember anything, and I always thought that Woodward had paid him some proceeds from the book or the movie. And that's why Woodward was not cooperating with us because he didn't want to, you know, you know, he had a deal I thought. And so, but he couldn't tell me that Mark was deep throat because then I could go blab it. So he denied it. So I thought, well, Woodward's ethical and he wouldn't be refusing this request from the lawyer of his great source unless there was a good ethical reason. Well, guess what? <laughs> was there a good ethical reason? Um, and you go to Woodward's book, and if you look at Woodward's book, Secret Man, he admits the deal in which he's not supposed to tell anyone, and this is the deal he had with Mark, he's not supposed to tell anyone that um, – that he had this top secret source, a uh, high level source. That was part of his deal. And yet billions of people knew there was deep throat, a very high level secret source. Because Mark knew that if he, um, if Woodward revealed that, people would start looking maybe at the FBI. So Mark didn't want that out there. And so, and the other thing, I talked to Mark when Mark is very resistant about coming out at first. And finally I told him, well, you know, Mark, Woodward's going to name you after you're de dead. You don't right. want that, do you? You don't want him to name you at all, but he's going to name you after you're dead. Woodward had said so. 
And, of course, from looking at the books, there's never been any thought at all that Mark ever said, Bob, you can name me after I'm dead. He never said that. Yet Woodward told the whole world he was going to do that. So it was really very much a a double cross of his source. So here's a guy, Woodward, who the world has renowned as being the great source protector. He's the guy that's going to protect. and He's the guy that's going to write a book about the Supreme Court because he protects his sources. Well, guess what? He's a great example of a guy who did everything, who, who breached every protective promise he made to a source. The other thing about this is that I found interesting was, and this is one of the things I thought about as I went through this analysis, I said, you know, there's some things that I think Deep told Woodward that Woodward never published. He never published any of Deep Throat's insights about the CIA that would have led them somewhere. You don't find anything in any of the articles about the CIA, and yet I know from various you know, sleuthing here that Felt had to have told Woodward about the CIA and given him material information from which any good reporter should have said, hey, the CIA is deeply involved in Watergate. This is a serious deal here. The CIA has got some splaining to do. But in other words, when you have an anonymous source, you hear people in the media say, well, sometimes we know that the sources can lie to us. We're rectitudinous here in the press, but sometimes we know people can lie to us. How about this one? What about when a source tells you A, B, and C, and you decide that maybe B and C aren't so important, and you're going you're gonna to report A and maybe emphasize A a little more than the guy told you. So in other words, if it's an anonymous source, the source is really very much prevented from sort of saying, hey, <laughs> you didn't get it right because you're an anonymous source. You can't admit you'd have to admit you were that source to sort of say, hey, he didn't quote me right or he didn't say everything I'd said. Right. So that's a real problem with using anonymous sources that nobody really thinks about is – the newspaper guy really correctly reflecting what this guy is telling him. Uh, so we have all kinds of problems from that. You can take that source and you can use them and abuse them any way you want because he's anonymous. So another problem with the great investigative journalism that everybody touts is just being so wonderful. Um, so that's, that's a problem. But getting back to your question about Deep Throat, there are hints and hints and hints. I'll give you one more hint, JB. Okay. Uh, that might be fun for you. Woodward goes to a bar in early March 1973, and with Deep Throat, and it's a odd situation because they always had met in garage. Deep Throat felt like going having a few whiskey. He was kind of rambunctious, and he went to a bar where he didn't think anybody would notice the two of them, and. Uh, Deep Throat was kind of satisfied that this thing was in the bag and things were going to go, as, and he'd done his job and kept the investigation alive. Um, but at that meeting, he told Woodward about the so-called Kissinger wiretaps, in which Henry Kissinger had had not only his own aides in the National Security Council wiretapped, but also wiretapped 
a couple people from the New York Times, a guy from CBS News, and uh, a columnist by the name of Joseph Kraft. Very, very sensitive, very, very right on the edge of legal, no warrants to do it. They're wiretapped for national security purposes. But in my uh, looking at this, I knew that uh, for various reasons, just from just reading what had happened, uh, that only a few people had known about those wiretaps because they weren't kept in the regular FBI files. So there are only maybe eight or nine people who really would have known of those wiretaps. Jed Hoover was one. Richard Nixon was one. Mm-hmm. Henry Kissinger was one. So you go down the list and you say, wait a second. There's only two people on this list that might could possibly be deep throat. And that's Alexander Haig, who's a general who was Nixon's chief of staff, and Mark Felt. Those are the only two people that could have known that information. Um so now we've narrowed just on that we've narrowed it down to two guys. Right. But but you can keep doing this and doing this and I could bore your viewers. We could have a seventeen part series on this thing. Uh and I could bore the and I, I go to it in the book and the, the reader can get a little more detail uh from how I identified Deep Throat and, and what clues Woodward left. And it's it's very much like a Sherlock Holmes deal. Right, but it sounds like as you go through these individual clues, one name continues to be on the remaining list, if you will. And in the case you just cited, it was Alexander Haig and Mark Fell. And another one, it's somebody else and Mark Fell. And, you know, the, the one name remains constant there. Right, right. And everywhere you go, one of the guys is Mark Fell. Right. You know? And uh, pretty soon you draw your diagram and you say, well, gosh, he seems to pop up and 49 different searches. <laughs> so, John, was uh, was Deep Throat, a.k.a. Mark Felt, a hero or a villain? Will history deem him, or, or does history deem him a hero or a villain? Well, let me answer it this way. He actually is a hero, and I'll tell you why. But before I get into that, we have our own problem of the press. And uh, there was a book written in 2012 by a guy I kind of like. His name's Max Holland, but he's a journalist, journalist, D.C., you know, very liberal journalist. And he wrote a, a, a book, the thesis of which Mark felt was just trying to uh, – was revengeful about not being passed over for the number one person in the FBI. So he wrote this book called Leak in which he's basically said, oh, well, felt was this terrible guy. And I know enough about it. It's got about 2,000 footnotes and all of them to stuff that don't mean a darn. And I could rip it up 17 ways to Sunday. He's just way off on all kinds of stuff, on all kinds of stuff. I mean, I've seen the FBI reports. I know how to read them. I'm a prosecutor. But what you get is, and I think Max Holland, I talked to him a bunch, and he's a nice guy. He's trying to make a buck, send, you know, be a be a literary sensation. Um uh, but but what happens is who writes the history on this? Now I think that if you look at Mark Felt as to what he was doing, what his motive was, his motive, and he told me this. I'll say this. He told me this when he was ninety years old. He said I wasn't trying to get Nixon. That was, and and he actually liked Nixon quite a bit uh, because of his law and order and his uh, firmness on foreign policy and on fighting terrorism, which was terrible at the time. Uh, felt was all behind Nixon. Now he didn't like a lot of the 
slimy lieutenants he had running around the White House. So Nixon had this habit of having really good people that went to Harvard that were pure and clean, and then other guys who were just just slime balls. That's all I can call them. Uh, and and so, but but Nixon had, had that funny sort of combination. Um, and Felt did not like all Nixon's lieutenants. That's what I would tell you, and that's why he thought some of them were unknowable and weird people. But here's what Felt was trying to do. In September of 72, three months after the burglaries, the Justice Department announced with great fanfare that the seven original suspects, five burglars, two supervisors, were being indicted, and that there were no further indictments forthcoming. At this point, the American public had been voting like 80 to 20 that this was a non-scandal. Watergate was not a scandal. It did not move the needle. Nixon still won by an overwhelming majority in the voting. It was out there that the burglars were somehow paid by a slush fund from, you know, from the White House or somebody, but people just thought it was an odd one-off burglary. Felt knew that the Justice Department was artificially constricting the investigation to those seven people. And he wanted the more latitude to find out the White House lieutenant or lieutenants who were behind it, because he knew that he was going to find that. And he told his boss that the first day, tell the president, if they just let us run our course, we'll find the two lieutenants who did this. They'll walk the plank and this thing will be done with. And if they would have let Felt do that, that's what he would have found. You know, and usually you don't prosecute cover-ups. You just go get the guys who right. are really guilty, and you prosecute them, and that's it. Right. Uh, and that's probably what would have happened. But but in any way, what Felt wanted to do is when he knew that this thing was being artificially constricted, what he wanted was he had been developing powerful evidence of a dirty tricks campaign uh that he thought was connected to the burglary. It turns out it wasn't. <laughs> but where these guys that Nixon had, and it, the Dirty Tricks campaign went all the way up to the Oval Office. And he thought if he could investigate and bring to the grand jury the grand Dirty Tricks campaign and some other things that he'd gathered, he could find out through digging and turning people and maybe convicting this guy and have him turn here and there that he could find out whether Nixon had ordered the burglary. Okay, fair enough. It's a good, sound, investigative hunch he had, and he wanted to be free to pursue the dirty tricks. Now, in fact, what's ironic about this whole thing is that if he had pursued the dirty tricks, the dirty tricks did go up to Nixon. The dirty trickster was paid by Nixon's lawyer, was an old college friend of Nixon's aide-de-camp, uh, his close aide that was in his office every day. But the dirty tricks weren't much. Um, let me explain to your viewers what the dirty tricks were, what kind of things. First, let me go back to John Kennedy. Dirty tricks had always been an American electoral custom. Uh, John Kennedy had a dirty trickster named Dick Tuck. He's before your time, J.V., but Dick Tuck... Oh, all the papers just loved Dick Tuck. They would joke and laugh about all the dirty tricks that Dick Tuck played for John Kennedy. Like, I'll give you one. 
Nixon's at a whistle stop, you know, uh, you know, going down the train tracks, and he'd stop at a town, give a speech off the back of the train, and then that'd be the whistle stop. He'd go to the next one. Well, Nixon was doing a whistle stop campaign. He stops at one place, and there are thousands and thousands of people. They built the crowd really big, and he gets into his speech, and he's about two minutes in, and the train starts pulling away, and he doesn't know what to do, and he's talking, and the train just pulls away and takes off. Well. <laughs> Uh, Dick Tuck had paid the engineer 50 bucks to take off early. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it's pretty funny stuff. I mean, sure, it's dirty. I know it's wrong, but it's kind of Americana. Right. Kind of, you know, you put up a sign. Somebody puts up a sign, Nixon rally, and somebody else puts another sign up. It's a Nixon rally canceled or go to field B. (laughs) It's not in field A. And that's an American. And this is what the the uh, dirty tricksters were doing under Nixon. They were a little more uh, efficient than Kennedy's, and that's in typical Nixon fashion. But uh, I'll give you an example. This is one that sort of cracks me up. I don't know why I, I get a kick out of it. But in the old days, you would go to a hotel, and you could put your shoes out in the hallway, and somebody would come up and shine them. Pretty cool service. I mean, we all wish that were there today, but that's what you did at any hotel. Well, these guys would go to hotel. Uh, the people on uh, the um, McGovern advance team would go to hotel. They put their shoes out. The next morning, they go out to get them, and they'd be gone. And here, here everybody's scrambling to try to get to the rally, and they, nobody has any shoes. <laughs> and, and and they'd find them down a trash chute. Finally, somebody would find that there are a hundred pair of shoes down the trash chute. You know, and they'd find them, and you know, they'd be all be late. 30 minutes, and then they'd go to a campaign rally, and they'd find that there'd been a sign-up that, uh, you know, the rally was canceled. So that's what was it was going on. I mean, I don't want to make too light of it, but that's what, it, it, you know, it was kind of chicken bleep stuff, but Felt wanted this thing to be clean. He wanted to take this thing, and he did think, and I think Felt was right, that if he was allowed to really pursue this thing the right way, yeah, the dirty tricks would have been nothing, but uh, it, it was everything else. He would have gotten a couple of lieutenants, okay? And you would have gotten John Dean and Jeb Magruder as two names that may, people listening may or may not know about. But they're young lieutenants who were in on this thing. Nobody else knew what they were doing. And uh, uh, Magruder and uh, Dean would have walked the plank, and this thing would have been over, and nothing else would have come of it. But as it was, you ended up having a special counsel you had this, you had that, and then you had the cover-up, and Dean turns state's evidence and talks about the cover-up, and Nixon has the tapes. So it was very exciting for all of us back then. But um, it's um, – but was felt a hero? Yes, and here's why, because he was straight as an arrow. And one of the things he saw was – and this is where we get to today – if Mark Felt knew what James Comey had done to his FBI, he would be not turning over in his grave. He'd be spinning like a top. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole idea of Felt in Watergate was not to be political, as some people think, that, oh, he was out to get Nixon. No, quite the contrary. It was to be non-political. It was to say that the FBI is going to be straight and true, and they're not going to let p- politics influence That's one thing about J. Edgar Hoover. Every president said that. He's a stubborn mule. You can't push him around. He's not going to be 
swayed with the political winds, you're not going to get them to, to change things. And and that was admirable. People act like Hoover was this bad guy. He really wasn't. He was an odd duck. Yeah. You know, uh, and, you know, perhaps was a, a closet, not closeted, repressed. He was a repressed guy. I don't think he was ever closeted. I think he was repressed. There's no shred of evidence he ever acted out on his latent, whatever it might be. Uh, but he was um, very rectitudinous, very prudish, and didn't like and stubborn, and didn't like anybody telling him what to do. Now here we have today. So, so that's what Felt was fighting for because his boss Patrick Gray was bending with the political wind. He'd come in one day and say, "Hey, let's don't do this. Don't question people on the Mexican money trail." Well, <clears throat> you know, Felt ended up pushing that away like a housefly, but. Um, there are various things where the White House tried to get Gray to do stupid things, and actually one of them got Nixon impeached. When Nixon got the CIA to tell Gray to lay off the Mexican money trail investigation, which is a minor part of Watergate, when that came out on a White House tape that Nixon had ordered the CIA to lie to the FBI about that, that's what Nixon forced Nixon to go leave office, that tape. Had you had an FBI agent, an FBI head like J. Edgar Hoover, you never would have done that. You never would have gotten away with it. He, he wouldn't let the president do something like that and, and get away with it. Um, as it was, Nixon got away with it for a week, and then Felt came up and swatted it away like a housefly. Okay, if the CIA doesn't give us the answer in writing, we're going to go ahead and investigate the Mexican money trail. My point is, Felt was a straight guy. He believed in, in being straight, and he believed the FBI was the best agency in the world, and he wanted to keep it that way. And that's why he did what he did. And uh, today... You now have a situation in which James Comey has, you know, sort of turned everything on its head. And what he was doing uh, uh, the year before the election in 2016 and the year after is just shameful. Just shameful. I mean, the things that are coming out that he's just really got into partisan politics. Uh, you know, the whole idea that the FBI could be spying on an elected president, wiretapping him without telling the president he's being wiretapped. It's pretty, pretty amazing. I, mean, I say him being wiretapped. People in his campaign were right. being wiretapped, but most people don't understand that there's a two-jump rule. If you wiretap JV and JV talks to Steve Bannon, right. talks to Trump, you can wiretap not only JV, you can wiretap Bannon, and you can wiretap Trump. And so, you know, in essence, the FISA warrant they had allowed you to, you know, get to conversations that are pretty darn close to the president, if not of the president himself. And you had an FBI agent making book on the president, opening up a Russia investigation without any real factual predicate. It should have been dropped when when there was no there there, as Peter Stroke said. So what we have now is a highly politicized FBI, and it's going to be a long way for the Bureau to get back on its feet. The regular agents who are fine people and are steeped in the culture that I'm describing are livid. 
are livid about Comey. I will tell you that. I have a circle of friends and uh, ex-agents who talk to me all the time about this. Um, And I will tell you that what Comey did is just uh, just anathema to these guys. You just do not do this, especially you're not only playing political games, you're doing it in – in an election year to an election, screwing up an election, and then you're trying to sabotage the president's incoming team. There is nothing wrong with the FBI being straight and true, and if a case comes up against the president, you prosecute it. But that's not what happened here. That's not what happened here. John, uh, do, us, do, so, us a, do us a favor, though. Um, yeah. You know, people look at Watergate as being the, you know, the pinnacle of political conspiracy and it forced a president to resign. It changed the course of many things in this country, particularly the media and other things. They look at it as being, you know, the ultimate scandal in the White House. How does it compare to what we're learning about in the Obama White House and what's going on now? I'll listen, J.B., it's like, uh, uh, you know, Watergate is like Little League. And, uh, uh, you know, and this late, latest scandal is the Yankees against the Dodgers. Uh, this is a big deal. Think about it. Here's what happened in Watergate. First, on sort of a rogue operation, somebody did this stupid thing of uh, of wiretapping the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. They're really looking for girly talk, but even if they weren't, even if they were looking for campaign information, it was just minor stuff. There was no campaign information of the DNC at the time. It never made any sense to anybody that knew anything about this. Um, The candidate hadn't even been elected, but that's what it was. And then what happens is it's a bunch of people not being straight about it. Nixon felt somebody in his White House had probably done this, and everybody was denying it. And so he went along, and he was advised by John Dean to cover it up. Everybody started covering it up. Okay, so you covered it up. I I have no problem with that. It was a cover-up in the sense that then a couple people lied under oath, and Nixon did a couple things that would be called corrupt, that is, dishonest, when he dishonestly told the CIA tell the FBI not to investigate this little piece of the case, which was where the money went to Mexico and came back. It meant nothing. It meant nothing. Nixon was trying to protect a donor who was going to get outed in the process. And then there was another time where Nixon had approved John Dean's suggestion that they raise a million dollars for Howard Hunt to pay for his expenses as he was going to jail. Actually, it's probably legal to do that. Most corporations, when they're People get sued or get convicted. They could, they pay their expenses. But the whole notion was that this was hush money. And I, I don't disagree with that. It was probably hush money. In other words, it was paid to keep them quiet. So that was a crime. Okay, that's the crimes of Watergate. Now, then there are, of course, 40 people went down because of it that were in some form or fashion involved in covering up what they knew or in making illegal campaign contributions that year in 1972, if you made a contribution before April 7th, you didn't have to disclose it. If you made it after April 7th, you had to disclose your name. And there are a lot of people like George Steinbrenner, the owner of the Yankees, had made a contribution after April 7th, and he falsified when he had done it or who had done it, that kind of thing. 
And a lot of these things were really chicken bleep crimes. Uh, and basically it was Nixon. And so what happened back in 72, everybody said, well, these crimes aren't really much. This burglary was just a third-rate burglary, and all Nixon did was cover up for it. People said, oh, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. This is against all notions of decency. You can't lie. Well, you know, then we have Bill Clinton lying about something he did. And people said, well, it's okay to lie in this case because he was you know, didn't want his wife to find out what he was doing. My point is, you look back at Watergate, and yes, it's a scandal. Yes, it should throw mud on Nixon. And if everybody knew all the facts and wanted to get rid of them, then that's fine with me. But you compare it to today, and here's the scandal today. The scandal isn't anything Trump did. The scandal is that there is a rogue agency, the FBI, that really falsely cooked up a scandal, an investigation, had a presidential campaign wiretapped, and I would say without cause, okay, wrongly, uh, using fake catfishing schemes and phony witnesses, the Steele dossier, and I'll get into the Steele dossier in a second, and, and this a fake professor and the fake Putin's niece. But what we had was an, was an FBI, as aided by other intelligence services, but mainly the FBI, cooked up a way to frame a, first a presidential candidate and later a president. And that's what they were doing. They were trying to frame them. They're trying to trap people and uh, destroy a campaign and destroy a candidate. And using the very important and powerful uh, uh, methods, procedures, that we use to fight our worst terrorist enemies. We use the most extraordinary powers we have that are not, by the way, they're not sanctioned by the Bill of Rights. Under the Bill of Rights, you need to get a search warrant. If they want to search John O'Connor, they've got to go to a magistrate and say that we have reason to believe, A, he's committed a crime, and B, we'll find evidence related to that crime in a certain place, and here's how we know it. Swear to God, okay, Fourth Amendment. Citizens are protected. In the case of terrorism, in the case of enemies to our country, you don't need to follow the Fourth Amendment. It's a special branch of the president's powers under Article Two. And so if you want to hunt out communists or Nazis during the Second World War, you can break into their apartment without a true search warrant and try to find information. Okay. Now, we use them. That's a long way away to say Comey used those extraordinary powers that should be against our worst terrorist enemies. He used those powers to, to jimmy up a false counterintelligence investigation, a national security investigation, where you don't have to go through the Bill of Rights stuff. You don't need a warrant. You don't need probable cause. But he did it to get the president. He, and he got this thing. And then by making book on him, he then got this Mueller investigation started, which was started on a phony basis um, and just hoping. So what we have is a complete perversion of our system of government. Uh, 
you know, with a, an inside guy, sort of a, a rotten apple inside. And so what I would tell you is, and I would tell anybody who asked me about this, this is so much worse than Watergate that it's just it, – Watergate is child's play compared to using these methods as opposed to, okay, these guys broke into a DNC and it was really sort of stupid and they were looking for girly talk. Uh, you know, if guys down the street uh, talk to girls down the street, that's what they're looking for. People thought the way the Post wrote it that they were looking for campaign secrets. Whichever one of those is true, it doesn't make any difference. They're both chicken bleep crimes. Okay. Yet, 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 uh, most of the media is yawning at this. Well, they are because they want to, and that's my point to you earlier. Yeah. If you say. Oh yeah, Hillary Clinton uh, took uh, sold twenty percent of our uranium. Ho hum, what's the big deal? Uh, oh yeah, Biden, Hunter Biden, uh, aided and abetted five point six million. Oh ho hum, and now you say in excited voice, President Trump made a phone call to Zelensky. <laughs> what? Yeah. My God! It's so ridiculous. Rattle your teacups, clutch my pearls, rattle the teacups. This is terrible. And so that's my point. Exactly. How is the media treating it? I mean, the media should be going bananas over this. But if you depend on these people to have the correct reaction, you're going to, you're not looking the right place. This is a terrible thing. Yeah. Now, what's going to happen? My prediction is that a bar is at least going to get some of these people. Some of the people, everybody's going to try to say, well, I didn't know that this was a phony witness. You had these phony witnesses and the main phony witness in the Steele dossier. And then you had the professor who was supposed to be Russian intelligence with Putin's niece, and he wasn't Russian intelligence, and she wasn't Putin's niece. You had these phony people, and the FISA court was fooled by nobody telling him. By the way, we concocted this thing with the phony professor and the phony Putin's niece, and then the Steele dossier here has got a phony witness who doesn't really know anything and claims to know about Putin and know about Trump together. It's a phony deal. But um, is is the media going to make a big deal of it? Probably not. So what will happen is I think Barr is going to have some indictments here. I don't know who's going to get out who's not going to. It's hard to say because it's a very much case-specific thing. But when he does it, here's my prediction. The media is going to go wild and say, oh, my gosh, this is all political. Yeah, of course. They're going to say it's all political. What do you yep. mean political? I mean, is it okay to to have a false? Is it okay to catfish a campaign and then wiretap them? Right. With no basis. I mean, is it okay? Is it yeah? Yeah. These are the biggest threats to our, our system of uh, government that I've ever seen or even heard about, and they're being ignored by the media. They're not being reported on. And as you said, if if anything is done, it's going to uh, they're going to scream. Oh, this is political cronyism, as they did with Roger Stone, as they have with Michael Flynn. Um, you know, they're doing all those things. John, we're going to run out of time here, but I I need to ask you. Um, you know, just very recently, the last couple of days, we've had another leak from an intelligence source talking about uh, some other uh, Trump Putin. Uh, situation, which I'm still not even sure I understand, are the people that are leaking this information from intelligence agencies, and this, we've had a, you know a dozen of them or so in the last three years. Would you would you say they are deep throat esque, or would you say they're just a bunch of wannabes? Well, first of all, uh, deep throat made sure <laughs> he told Woodward he would never give him even 
not only he wouldn't give him classified information, he wouldn't give him information from his own case files. That's why he played this funny game with Woodward that Woodward uh, said on in the movie, stop your chicken shit games. Why aren't you just giving me information? I just want you to give me information. Right. And, and Mark said, no, you got to do it my way. You go over here and you go ask JV the question. I'm not going to tell you what JV said from the file. You go ask him. And he was doing it properly. So he's not a guy that was leaking. He was very straight about what he did with Woodward. That's one of the reasons I knew he was an FBI agent, because he was doing things by the book. He was not giving out information from the files, even though that wasn't a crime. It was just sort of an ethical violation if you give out – if you take your case file and you give the the 302 to somebody. Um, But what these guys are doing is not only unethical, it's illegal. They're giving – classified information out there. And the worst part about it is, and I suspect this is true, is that it is probably falsely portrayed. It's probably not the whole story. But the problem is you leak something of a classified nature, and if it's not completely true, does somebody then go out and say, whoa, it's not completely true. Let me leak some more so you have the full story. (laughs) You can't do it. You're kind of caught. So so what we have is I don't trust these things. There's a big <clears throat> sort of like they say, there's a big uh, swampy bureaucracy that is uh, you can call it deep state. It's just it's just the um, incumbents and the incumbents tend to be about 95 percent Democrat. They're worried like hell about Trump because Trump is constantly threatened to, you know, to dismember NATO or cut down on our payments to our allies. And so everybody thinks that they're. You know, their their champagne brunches in Brussels are going to get cut out. That's right. And so nobody likes what he his attitude towards these intelligence agencies, and certainly not lately. So they're trying to get back at him, and and in fact, they're trying to get back at him hard before the uh, bar in Durham indictments come down. So I wouldn't trust any of these leaks, but I would like to see somebody prosecuted for a leak. I mean, it's just yeah. it's just too much why why can't we do it we can do it it's no longer a leak it's a, it's a constant flow it's a stream anymore remember who is our champion to tell us how to do a leak investigation it is none other than drumroll james <laughs> comey james comey was the guy who put the scooter libby leak investigation in in play even though he knew who had leaked and and he knew that valerie plane was not covered by the act and was not a covered agent, but he started a leak investigation. And what he did was he started bringing the uh, newspaper people to the grand jury and making him testify. And if they wouldn't, he was throwing them in jail, having his guy Patrick Fitzgerald put him in jail. Well, he did. He showed the whole world that you can do a leak investigation and have make it make these people in the press talk. Now, a lot of people don't like to do that, don't like to subpoena the press, but you can do it. If it's a criminal leak investigation, you can do it, and you can force people to testify. And I think if this stuff happens, I just hope Barr has the, you know, has the brass to go ahead and really bring some of these, like, for instance, David Ignatius of the Post got a couple key leaks that was, were used to screw Flynn, and they were leaks of classified information. So I'd like to see some of this leak stuff be 
prosecuted so that others would simply follow suit and be good boys and girls. But it's it's become like a torrent. You're right. It's just terrible. It's nonstop. And the good guys yeah. can't. And the good guys can't counter it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the phrase by the book. We've got just a couple of minutes left here. But when you said that, I immediately thought about Susan Rice, that uh, memo that uh, was recent, re- recently declassified and released. What's the significance right. of that? That is the most important memo that's ever come to, to pass. And I'll give it to you real quickly. When she wrote that on January 20th at noon, going out the door, no people didn't know why she did it. Obviously, it was in a CYA memo. The reason being is this, the January 5th meeting distinguished between two types of investigations, and your viewers should listen, should heed this because it's very important. There are regular law enforcement slash criminal investigations that the attorney general handles. Those are attorney general, use the Fourth Amendment, regular procedures. At that meeting, everybody took two seconds to say, okay, all those are by the book. The real subject of discussion was what to do about the counterintelligence investigations, the one I described earlier where you don't need to follow the Fourth Amendment and their national security investigations. That is not an attorney general investigation, as the law enforcement ones are where the attorney general handles it. A counterintelligence investigation is what they were talking about. That was the Russian counterintelligence investigation. And guess who runs that investigation? Not, and Susan Rice says it in the memo. Everybody should go read it if you can pull it up on the Internet. She says, and I'll interpret for you, she says, and correctly, that that investigation is of Trump and his national security team. It's under the Constitution, Commander-in-Chief Counterintelligence. So what does that mean? Meanwhile, at the meeting, Comey is telling people he wasn't going to give Trump that information. Obama was kind of pestering them. He's a weak guy, but he was pestering them to give them the information. Susan Rice was pestering them to give them the information. Trump has to know about this Russian investigation. Comey was refusing. So Obama was saying, uh, you know, well, tell me, I want you to change Comey. And Comey was saying, no, I didn't like the way uh, Flynn talked to Kislyak. I don't like this. I'm not going to tell him because Flynn should get the information, too. He's a national security advisor. Sure. So Flynn and Trump should get that information. And it's my belief that they had the right. It might be unethical. It might be sleazy. It might violate custom not to give that information to the Trump national security team, Trump and Flynn, before January 20th, because that's Barack Obama's investigation. He can tell who he wants, really. In spite of custom, in spite of practice, he can hide that from Trump. However, everyone at that meeting knew that come January 20th, that information had to be given to Trump and Flynn, and that Comey was not inclined to do it. And so when January 20th came and Comey still hadn't spilled the beans to Trump, still hadn't told him about it, she had to write that memo. She went to her lawyer, and it was at noon, and she's saying, listen, I'm leaving here. But as far as I'm concerned, this thing should be by the book. Everyone said it's by the book. And by the way, I'll put a few things in here that Comey was resisting us. And guess what Comey did after that? Comey was there for four months after that. And I don't think he ever fully told the president about the investigation that the president was supposed to be in charge of. And did he tell Flynn? No. The first thing he did is before anybody could give a warning to Flynn, he went over and did that questioning of him. Sally Yates, to her credit, was flabbergasted 
that they didn't even tell Flynn about the Kislyak call of his that they had that they had taped. It would be normal practice to say, hey, Flynn, we've got you on tape. You know, we just want to let you know that we've got this tape of you and Kislyak now. You know, in fact, they didn't need to question him, frankly, but they at least they should have told him about the phone call. I think there's a good case can be made that everything that Comey did from January 20th on without telling Trump and the national security team about this counterintelligence investigation and the main and what they were doing. And the fact that, by the way, I've got this warrant on, on your people, president. I just want to let you know that he had to tell them that. And I don't think he told them that. And it looks to me like he did not from the time January 20th and Susan uh, Rice's CYA memo was written until May when he was fired. And I think if Barr wants to do it and Durham wants to do it, I think that's an obstruction of justice because that's an investigation that he's not giving the information to the person that's in charge of it. He doesn't have to tell Trump or uh, Flynn about a law enforcement investigation that's always been considered independent. You're not supposed to tell by custom that's okay. In fact, you shouldn't tell the president about, by the way, we're investigating Ivanka for something. That's fine. You don't have to tell him. Right. But if it's a counterintelligence investigation, you got to tell him. By the way, we're looking at Ivanka. She may be a Russian spy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's you just brought up the most important piece of uh, evidence, in my view, against uh, Comey and his crew. John, it sounds like uh, based on our conversation tonight, we could divide this up into three or four, maybe five different shows and continue talking about it. Please promise you'll come back and we'll have some more of this conversation. Yeah, this is a this is a multi-part deal, and it's one of the most important things. I think it's far more dangerous to our country than Watergate. I agree. But your book is called Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Journalism. Where can people find it? Well, the best place to go is on Amazon. Uh, if you want to know more about it or read some of my articles, you can go on postgatebook.com, postgatebook.com, and read the reviews, or just go to Amazon, which has got some of the reviews. There's some pretty good reviews on, on Amazon there. Uh, and uh, and I'll tell you this, it's something that uh, once you read that book, you'll never feel the same about the press again. Well, again, thanks for being here. It's been a great discussion, John. I appreciate the work you're doing, and I appreciate your insight into these topics. JB, this has been great. Thank you for uh, listening to my soliloquies. <laughs> we'll talk again soon. Again, go to postgatebook.com. You can get more informa- information about John's work. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.